This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Texas 11th District Representative Mike Conaway. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Healthy Hives, Bayer's Bee Health Research Initiative. Since 2015, Bayer's Healthy Hives Research Initiative has worked to help beekeepers around the world improve the health of their colonies. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Congressman Mike Conaway next. Healthy Hives, a bee health research initiative led by the Crop Science Division of Bayer and the nonprofit Project IPIS, has been extended through 2023. Launched in 2015, Healthy Hives has funded research projects with academic institutions across the world with one goal in mind, to help beekeepers improve the health of their colonies. With more than $1.8 million in funding support from Bayer, Healthy Hives researchers have conducted projects covering multiple aspects of beekeeping, ranging from nutrition and genetics to hive management. The research conducted under Healthy Hives could have a dramatic, tangible impact on the future health of pollinators, as well as the viability of beekeeping, both of which are crucial to the world's food supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. In the twilight of the 116th Congress, Leadership is grappling with how to fund the government for the rest of the fiscal year and if there's going to be another round of COVID relief for the nation. Texas Congressman Mike Conaway is concerned about the bottom line of the nation. I may be a bit of an outlier on this, Jeff. We've spent upwards of $2.5 trillion at COVID, all of that borrowed money. Uh, You look at the rise in in, uh, national debt since March, it's stunning. I mean, it's like a straight line up. Over 10% increase in debt. We ran a $3.1 trillion deficit in, I think, through 3.1 to 3.3 in uh, fiscal 2020. We will run another big deficit this year. And so while uh, a lot of cases can be made for, for making the, you know, another round, not having the conversation about how we pay it back, who we borrow it from, the impact it has on the financial stability of this nation has gotten lost in all of this. And I think it's time now to have that conversation because you've got a lot of governors out there who are begging for this round because they want the federal government to run a deficit, but they don't want their own states to run deficits. So I understand why governors are, are you know, pleading for uh, more money, but uh, I'm, I'm probably a no on, uh, on another round. Now, there is money within the $2.5 trillion that hasn't been spent. As an example, we've got about $130 billion of PPP money that needs to be reauthorized We've got a, a discharge petition on a bill to do that, reopen the program, let uh, uh, and, and lend that other $130 billion. Speaker Pelosi has sat on that uh, to the detriment of every small business out there that could have used that help uh, specifically. It's a tried and proven program now. We know how to do it, and, uh, and that would have been resources that uh, could have helped. There may be other resources within that $2.5 trillion that didn't get spent. I would be okay with repurposing those dollars. But another trillion dollars, which was the, you know, the bipartisan problem solvers deal, was 908. I think McConnell's put another half a billion. Speaker Pelosi supposedly, and Schumer, may have uh, in the dark of night slipped a, uh, a package under the <laughs> under under uh, Mitch McConnell's door that uh, that may be in the trillion dollar range. I just don't think it's good for the rest for the nation. We've just got to power through this and and not borrow more money from future generations than what we already have planned to borrow uh, over the next 10 years from uh, from them right, right now. So I'm probably a no, but 
but we'll see. I'm going to raise this because I don't know that I've ever seen anything that was as far-reaching and detrimental to agriculture than was this COVID pandemic. It hit everybody. And there has been help for a lot of the industry. And, yes, farm income is going to wind up for the year looking better. But, Congressman, in the meantime, the ethanol industry has suffered, and they're still suffering. You've got swine producers that were caught for a period of time that had no place to market animals. They were donating them. They were euthanizing them. They didn't see any help. And then you've got the contract poultry growers of swine and from others that also lost opportunity through there, and they're still suffering from those losses. Those are the ones that I raise thinking of agriculture and the need for help. Is that a day gone by? Well, it's it's certainly reflective of what Speaker Pelosi did to rural America. Uh, If you look at the original package back in March coming out of the Senate, uh, it was about $50 billion for uh, production agriculture. Speaker Pelosi then weighed in, negotiated it down to $23 billion, far short of what was necessary. Now, we've come through with other monies and those kind of things, but every time we've done this, we've not properly looked at what was happening uh, at production agriculture and, and, and addressing the issues that, uh, that she talked about. And, and so rural America has suffered as a result of that. She and her team really don't like rural America. And uh, that's seen time and time again with her proposals on shortchanging uh, or not not properly allocating resources out of uh, you know out of that two trillion two and a half trillion dollars, precious little, and, and it's hard to say that you're talking about billions of dollars that did go to production agriculture, but nevertheless it didn't come close to what the uh, what the needs were as uh, as uh, Secretary Purdue when he was going through the analysis back in April he had it pegged the number between 43 to 45 billion. And she single-handedly got it at 23. And so that's reflective of not being able to help the folks that we have. I do think that there will be additional ad hoc. Uh, there's conversations going on right now about the WIP Plus program, extending that to uh, 2020 crop losses, given the, given the big storms that we've had this year. So I do think there will be other uh, avenues to address uh, those issues. But clearly, the three that you mentioned, and there are other segments that uh, that have suffered as well, uh, you know, looking back at the CPAP program and those things that didn't necessarily address uh, ethanol at all, um, d- did have some help for hog farmers and and uh, and poultry producers got some help out of those monies, but but uh, the ethanol, uh, given the, the dramatic drop in gasoline usage as a result of everybody shutting down the economy and quitting driving our cars, uh, has had a, a huge impact on those guys. Now, um, you know, we've got some relief coming out of China by buying corn that uh, might have otherwise not been sold, those kind of things. But I do think those conversations uh, need to be a part of the part of the mix. Uh, the number that's in the $908 billion number, I think, is a total of $26 billion for nutrition and agriculture. Again, not going not gonna to get it done uh, when it comes to it. In, in McConnell's $500 billion number, it was $20 billion. Again, far short of what uh, uh, what's what's really happened in uh, in uh, production agriculture. Uh, Congressman, for the hundred seventeenth, there will be three names that will be absent, and that is Roberts, that is Peterson, and that is Conaway. From uh, the position of, of the uh, Democratic Party, it's been Mr. Peterson's uh, relationship with Speaker Pelosi that was able to get some things done for agriculture. Now that he's gone, what should we expect? Man, I don't know. Um, They've just tagged uh, David Scott to be uh, the chairman of, of uh, the House Ag Committee. 
uh, G.T. Thompson is going to be the uh, ranking member on the Republican side, but that is a great question to ask. One of the things that people will be watching is what does Biden do with his Secretary of Ag? Sonny Perdue has done a great advocate for production agriculture. He's been at the president's ear over and over and over throughout this entire process, and the President Trump has been a terrific supporter of uh, farmers and ranchers across this nation. But but Sonny gets a lot of that credit uh, for continuing to to make sure the president understood what was happening. If if they went with a Colin Peterson as the Secretary of Ag, then that would mitigate uh, that loss in some form or fashion. But some of the names I've heard have a dramatic lack of foreign policy, in, uh, either heart or uh, information about it. They're, they're more about nutrition and other things, and so that's uh, that's really troubling on that side as well. But pose a good question, and uh, it's going to be up to David Scott to try to fill those big shoes, and I hope he's got as good a relationship with Speaker Pelosi as, uh, as Colin did. Some numbers are coming out suggesting that regardless of the situation that we have endured in 2020, we could see the highest net farm income since 2013, $47 billion in farm payments. Is this sustainable? I don't believe it is, uh, Jeff. You know, we've had some good news with the markets coming back a little bit, but, but we've never had that level before that I'm aware of uh, in a 12-, you know, 14-month period, and I just, I just don't think it's sustainable, uh, certainly given the, uh, the, the steep deficits that our nation is going to face. At, at some point, we have to face the, the debt issue at the federal level. Um, we are a whole lot like the fellow that fell off the 10-story building, when he passed the fifth floor, he's saying, so far, so good, so far, so good. Well, that's where we are with his debt. We continue to borrow money thinking there's never an end to it. He had a rude awakening coming, and we do too. Now, I don't know if it's 10 years out, five years out, or day after tomorrow, but at some point in time, the rest of the world is going to decide, you know, I'm not sure the American taxpayer is going to be good for all that debt. And when that happens, you're going to start increasing our interest rates in order to keep loaning us the money. And that increased interest is nowhere in the current budget. So if you put 300 basis points or 3% on $27 trillion over the relatively short period of time it would take to reprice all of our debt, that's $750 billion plus that's nowhere in today's spending plan. And so we've, we've got a reckoning coming and, and uh, uh, been able to continue to, uh, to support the kind of levels of payments that, that ag enjoyed in 2020, although deserved and certainly put to good use. I'm not sure that we can uh, sustain that uh, going forward. Biden team appears to have a strong emphasis headed toward climate change, already naming John Kerry to the team. Uh, there's discussion about using CCC funds uh, to purchase carbon offsets. Is that statutorily acceptable? I don't believe it is. Now, obviously, his team's got lawyers that's saying it is, but, um, you know, Sonny Perdue was uh, handcuffed with, uh, like, the ethanol issue. He couldn't use CCC money to uh, to help the ethanol. He could help the corn producers, but he couldn't help the, or the refineries because he believed there were restrictions on that on that, that program. Uh, obviously, Biden's got lawyers telling him that, that he can, but it is not good policy. That is a big deal, and that should go through Congress. It should uh, have the fist fight that they need to have. Obviously, Pelosi tried it before uh, to have mandatory carbon, you know, carbon capture, that kind of thing. And so I don't think it's uh, something the administration ought to do out of hand uh, without uh, the House and the Senate weighing in on what's the, what's the best way to go at it. But obviously he's got lawyers that they tell him it's okay. I just think it's terrible policy to initiate it in that manner. The emphasis on climate change, is this a positive or is this a negative for agriculture? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
you know, Jeff, with every single policy that we artificially put in place, there are winners and losers in that policy. There's nothing out there that we do where everybody gets 100% win kind of circumstances. So depending on how it's implemented and how the market is allowed to do it, if, if the push is toward a free market solution, free market answers to this, there are good examples around where the free market has been able to exercise common sense solutions that gets us to where we're gonna, we want to get to. The problem, of course, is that the advocates and the zealots uh, aren't interested in, uh, in, in ways that, that producers continue to implement good policies but still make money. That gets lost in the mix, and they just think you get all the way to the end result without uh, without a proper transition. So if the free market system is allowed to, to get it done, then I think it would happen, and uh, and the, few, the fewest number of folks would be hurt and put out of business by uh, by those deals. If the the hard left zealots are allowed to do it, uh, it could uh, it could be stunningly disruptive to this overall economy, uh, not just production agriculture, but the economy you know, everywhere. We'll be paying much much higher costs for our energy, uh, which has been one of the U.S.'s competitive advantages against the rest of the world. We will always pay higher wages in the United States than they do in other parts of the world. We just have to manage against that issue. But we've been able to compete partly because we've had much lower energy costs, and uh, and to give that up uh, under this uh, uh, misguided mission that the United States by itself can stop climate change is uh, is wrongheaded. Until you get China and India to the table in meaningful ways to do what we've already done. If you look at the reduction in carbon the United States has experienced over the last 10 years, we're doing what we should be doing. These other nations are not. This the vaunted Paris Accord, none of the nations are getting there. None of them are meeting their goals under that accord. And yet somehow that's the savior of the world if you listen to, uh, to some of my Democrat colleagues. So the answer is if the free market's allowed to get there, I think fewer people will get hurt. If the zealots run the train, then uh, there are going to be a lot of losers, uh, and some winners, but a lot of losers in that uh, in that mix. If I don't, if I'm not mistaken, the last time we were talking about a global climate accord, whether it be Paris or other, uh, you saw the Chinese and some other key players, key polluters, calling themselves developing nations and giving themselves a free pass while putting handcuffs on industrialized countries like the U.S.? Well, the Chinese are really good at, uh, at, at playing this victim game that they do. They're good at lots of things. Uh, but the second largest economy in the world, you can't look in the mirror and call yourself a developing country. Now, Xi Jinping uh, can lie to himself all day long in this regard, but, but no one in their right mind thinks that China is a quote-unquote developing nation. They should be held to the same standards that the United States is, and they're not because they understand the competitive advantage it gives them to continue to do what they're uh, doing uh, while they try to hamstring the U.S. every way they get, every, every single way they can. So it comes as no surprise that, that Xi Jinping and the Communist Party in China would want to disadvantage America uh, while trying to advantage China. That's just what they do. We need to be realistic about it. We need to be clear-eyed about it. You cannot trust the Communist Chinese or Xi Jinping. You have to understand that, that uh, this uh, uh, 100-year marathon that they've, got, that they've got going on, this 2049 vision of China ruling the world, is their deal. And if you think they're deviating from that in the least, it is a subterfuge to get to where they want to get to. And so, uh, you know, for Xi Jinping or anybody to say China's a developing nation is, uh, is, is just wrong on every level. You were in the lead, and you also followed on two different farm bills. You saw policy being developed as challenging as it was for the industry and also with the financial constraints of the U.S. budget. If you look ahead, what are your thoughts for the future of farm policy, and, and what advice would you give to future leaders? 
Well, I think the way that Frank Lucas did on the 14 Farm Bill, which, by the way, was written when times were good. We wrote the 18 Farm Bill when times were terrible. Um, but for members uh, who represent rural America to, to uh, you know, understand what worked in the 18 Bill, what didn't work, it's always a evolutionary process. It's rarely revolutionary. But uh, uh, the issue of what, uh, what kind of resources will we have available to write the 2023 Farm Bill, I think all of this ad hoc disaster money that's that's gone into the system. You mentioned 47 billion. We will have a, 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 a an understanding in, by 2022 what that has done or not done uh, for uh, for rural America, and then see what it you know how new resources in the farm bill could, could could get there. One of the things that happened to us in the last one is the Senate Democrats cut two billion dollars out of out of rural electric stuff. And then spent that money on rooftop gardens and and all kinds of feel-good nonsense that doesn't really affect the broad production agriculture world. I had to kick go kicking and screaming to get 159 billion million uh, new money into Title One, and it had to come out of other places because we had had overall no new money. But if you look at the priorities that the Senate Democrats and Democrats in general set for the Farm Bill, they are going after boutique kinds of things. Rooftop gardens are terrific, but they're not going to feed America. They're not going to feed the rest of the world. Uh, they may not even feed the people that, that do them very, you know, for very long during the, uh, the year. And, and yet there are other kind of uh, niche kind of things that, that uh, particularly Senate Democrats just love to tout and, and brag about, but they don't move the needle when it comes to protecting rural America and production agriculture from the onslaught that they've got going on. So looking at uh, this idea that the farm bill should affect folks who make a living farming. You know, if you're out there and, and you know, I think the USDA currently defines a farm as you've got a thousand bucks of revenue. This is going to sound kind of harsh, but you don't feed your family if the only thing you're doing is a thousand dollars worth of revenue on a farm. Um, we ought to be focused on the farmers who, that's their prime source of income, that's who they feed their family with, and that's how the rest of the world gets to, you know, they provide those produce products for the rest of the world and focus our ag policies on those people and and not so much on the uh you know the local farm things and the you know local farmers markets and, and rooftop gardens and those kind of things it really should be focused on that part of production agriculture that feeds the vast majority of us and uh, on a day in and day out basis and i think that you're going to have to the resources will be uh, uh tighter because we're going to be further in debt than we are right now and I think the refocusing the overall uh, farm bill to focus on the, the groups that actually feed us and produce the, the majority of what we do, that's where the help should be going. And that's going to put the situation on supporting larger operations than smaller, and that flies in the face of some of the biggest debates that we've seen between the parties on policy over the past several years. I think that we've done a terrible job, quite frankly, in messaging that. We've allowed the the conventional wisdom to stand, uh, and I was thinking about this this morning, that as a part of that 2023 farm bill, we ought to look at uh, who, are, who are these quote-unquote big farmers. Let's find the biggest cotton producer out there and help us understand that's a family. Or find the largest peach producer out there. That's a family. And and, and, and dis, disabuse America of this notion that just because you farm a lot of acres doesn't mean you're a big, a big corporation or with shareholders and everything else like that. So I think production agriculture is going to have to fight that fight. We've been fighting it over and over and over because it's easy said. Uh, most folks take it as the gospel uh, because we do have some big farms out there. You can't 
feed your family on 100 acres of cotton farming and make that work. It just the, the economics are just not there. And so you get bigger in order to be able to compete and have the kind of scope that's there. But there's still family farms. So I think production agriculture is going to have to do a better job of illustrating right, who are these big guys. It's not the big seed companies. It's not the big fertilizer companies, which people throw those names out. Uh, it's just, you know, these mom-and-pop operations out there that just take an immense amount of risk you know, every single year. They take more risk in a, in a single growing season than most Americans take over a lifetime from a financial standpoint. And just because they're big doesn't mean that they're somehow bad or terrible. They're just trying to be as efficient as they can. And the fact that big, efficient you know, family farms like that provide us with produce that is in that you, know, we, you hear me and others say that, that production agriculture in America provides us the safest, most abundant, and affordable food fiber supply in the world. That happens because our folks are really good, and they're good because they're big and they can, can, can uh, take advantage of economies of scale. That doesn't make them terrible people. It just makes them take, taking big risks. And so my advice, if, if anybody cares or rats rear in what the party member of Congress's advice is, would be to do a better job of, of setting out examples of who these quote-unquote big farmers are so that we can, can offset that, that, that narrative that, that the totally uninformed try to pitch because they don't know come here from Sikkim about the about production agriculture. They're just parroting something they've heard or something they think makes sense and they don't have the real facts to, to go at it. And we've not done a good job of pushing back with those facts to much try to disabuse them of those bad ideas. I'm gonna wonder out loud as we begin to wrap up here, Congressman, I have to wonder in future farm bills, are there gonna be risk management tools? Can crop insurance survive? Are we going to shift from conservation to carbon sequestration? And given the propensity that we have to produce, if we don't have markets open, will we be talking about supply management plans again in the future? Well, if the, uh, if the hard left has their way, then uh, supply management would be something they would, they would certainly favor. That's what socialist countries typically do is try to you know, nationalize industries and try to manage that issue. Uh, and it, it never works because uh, you know, individuals can't make the kind of decisions broadly that the market does uh, on a normal basis. Um, we will do that at our, to our detriment. If uh, if we're unable to persuade uh, the folks who simply they're only linked to agricultures they eat uh, two and three times a day, that uh, that those are terrible ideas, then uh, then we will have that experiment, and that experiment will fail. Price food prices will go way up. Uh, Americans will start asking, now wait a minute, why are we paying so much for food? If they want to move that direction. Uh, under a Biden-led uh, administration, you know, the hard left turn that uh, that we hear Bernie Sanders and others talking about going toward, then we will have that experiment, uh, and it will wind up just like other experiments uh, recently, Venezuela, uh, Cuba, other places where socialism has been embraced and failed. Uh, that's the direction that uh, that would go. Congressman, I'd just like to thank you for your support for agriculture and our food production system. This industry is going to miss you. We respect the fact that you have the right to, to retire, but we also offer our gratitude for your time and service and your dedicated service to this business. Well, Jeff, thank you for that. Um, I've had a long goodbye. And um, the thing about uh, the positions I've been in is that, <clears throat> excuse me, I've been able to try to fight on behalf of the, the hardest working, most honest, decent uh, people on the face of the earth. These are God-fearing men and women who uh, loaded up every every crop year and uh, it takes some of the most stunning risks you could ever imagine. And it's been a, a real joy 
uh, to be able to go to work on their behalf and uh, uh, a real honor and the uh, highlight of a lifetime. So uh, thank you. Uh, I certainly appreciate it. And uh, it's been a great run. And, uh, and I've loved every minute of it. Our thanks to Texas 11th District Representative Mike Conaway, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Healthy Hives, Bayer's Bee Health Research Initiative. Since 2015, Bayer's Healthy Hives Research Initiative has worked to help beekeepers around the world improve the health of their colonies. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nally.